Um, we are going to talk today about uh, something that I'm sure all of you have received hundreds of emails about already, uh, the uh, force majeure issues that are arising now with the pandemic that we're in the middle of. Uh, first, let me just say I hope all of you are, are safe and that uh, you're all, uh, you and your families are, are all going to get through this safely uh, and in good health. Um, but we're here today to talk about contract litigation post-pandemic and various defenses that are available. Um, I'll slip right quickly through the first slide, which is a bio of uh, myself and my colleague Paul Robertson uh, from Demora Smith. We're trial lawyers. We practice mostly commercial litigation here in Massachusetts. Um, and our firm has offices in Boston, Wakefield, and Revere and we have 10 attorneys at our firm right now. Um, so we're, we're, we're talking about this and we're prompted by the, uh, the, the situation that's, that's going on right now with COVID-19 and the coronavirus, but you should all keep in mind that there are a number of different events that can occur that might result in a party to a contract not being able to perform the contract like natural disasters, uh, labor strikes, and things like that. Um, so uh, today we're going to spend a little time on four of the defenses to contract non-performance. Force majeure, impossibility, commercial impracticability, frustration of purpose, are the four that we're going to comment about and talk about. Our common, there's one commentator who has aptly described these doctrines uh, the following way. Physical impossibility can be described as the destruction of the subject matter of the contract, which makes performance objectively impossible. For example, things cannot be done. If the contract is capable of being performed, but the underlying purpose of the contract no longer exists, one should speak of frustration of purpose. And finally, in the case of commercial impracticability, performance is possible and the purpose of the contract can still be fulfilled. However, due to a change in circumstances, the performance of the contract by the promiser uh, is economically senseless. And force majeure is slightly different than these common law defenses in that a, it's, it's entirely based on the contract itself, although the analysis that's done for the, each of the other defenses sort of overlaps with, with, uh, with the force majeure. Uh, but uh, again, it is entirely based on the language in the contract. Uh, so uh, we're going to do today's presentation. Paul is going to talk about force majeure and impossibility of performance. Uh, and during the during the, uh, the and then I'm going to talk about the the issues of uh, frustration of purpose and commercial impracticability. Uh, and during the uh, presentations, we thought that having a hypothetical that we could use to sort of make a point at various times would be helpful. So we've created the hypo uh, a hypothetical involving the St. Patrick's Day parade. Uh, the St. Patrick's Day Parade was scheduled to occur on March 15th of 2020 through South Boston. And the Green Shamrock Restaurant is on the parade route and has a spectacular view uh, of the parade. Jimmy Bulger, a successful entrepreneur, 
rented the restaurant so that he could throw a St. Patrick's Day parade party, have a corned beef dinner buffet and open bar by invite only. He signed a contract with the restaurant in September of 2019 uh, for a price of $25,000 to rent the entire restaurant for the day of the parade. On March 9, 2020, the city of Boston and the uh, organizers of the parade canceled the 2020 parade because of the COVID-19 coronavirus uh, public health emergency. The day after that, Green Shamrock sends a $25,000 invoice to Jimmy Bulger with a letter, top of the morning, see you on March 15th. So we'll use that um, hypothetical on various, uh, at various points during our presentation today uh, to, to give you, uh, an, uh, you know, examples of, of what things might mean. I'm going to turn it over now to Paul, who's going to talk about the, uh, the, the uh, force majeure and impossibility of performance. Thank you very much, Ken. I'm going to do two things. One is I'm going to shut off my video so we can focus on the slides uh, and uh, not on the on the picture. Uh, and I want to echo Ken's comments. And I hope that everybody is uh, getting through this uh, safely. I think that um, Ken's um, uh, hypothetical is, is perfect. Ken, if you can go to the next slide. Um, what we want to talk about is the need to understand both sides of the equation. You're looking not only uh, at the obligation uh, to compel the opposing party to perform, but in what circumstances can uh, can your client or you be excused from performance? So this is, of course, a, a two-headed coin. And as Ken mentioned, there are four defenses. One is contractual and three are implied at law. The contractual uh, defense is uh, force majeure. And the three implied at law are impossibility, impracticability, and frustration of purpose. If I can go back uh, to Ken's hypothetical, uh, impossibility would be if, um, if uh, the restaurant, the Green Shamrock, burned down. If it burns down, it's impossible to, uh, to host the party. Impracticability might be uh, if you got uh, 10 feet, 5 feet, whatever amount of uh, snow, such that maybe the parade was still going forward, but it was impracticable commercially for anybody to get to that restaurant. Frustration of purpose might be a situation where the parade was canceled, right? The restaurant's still welcoming you, welcoming you with open arms, but the basic purpose of the contract to celebrate uh, this event on St. Patty's Day has been frustrated. And take a look back now at force majeure. Which one of these uh, categories uh, does force majeure fall into? And the answer is all of them and none because you can have a situation where the force majeure renders the contract impossible to perform, impracticable, it frustrates the purpose, or none of these. For example, if it's just a delay, you might have the right to uh, a force majeure claim, even though the contract is no longer uh, either impossible or practicable, or the purpose is, is frustrated. Ken, if you go to the, the next slide. So uh, two slides on, on general themes there, and this applies not only to frustration and purpose, but to the other defenses as well. And the, the first uh, point here is to read the contract, um, because all of these cases, as you'll see in my next point, are, are very much fact dependent, but also contractually dependent. And uh, when you're reading the contract, you not only want to look for the particular force majeure clause, 
but the other provisions as well. There are oftentimes notice provisions and terms of the contract itself, which will impact what the, the contracting party's duties are. And keep in mind too, don't just look for a force majeure provision. They're oftentimes uh, hidden away in other parts of the contract, uh, oftentimes called excuses for delay, uh, for example. The outcomes are extremely fact dependent, that, that it's, you know, your client calls you up and, and says, uh, hey, look, uh, do I have a force majeure defense? And you can rightfully answer, it depends, because it really does. It depends upon, as I mentioned, the contract language. It depends upon the nature of the intervening disruption. It depends upon what the parties do in response, whether they try to mitigate, whether they provide notice, what other actions they, they take. And finally, it depends upon the jurisdiction. A case in Massachusetts might have a different result in New York and yet another different result in Texas and yet a different result in Europe, depending upon what court is looking at the, at the provision. Ken, if you can go to the next slide. So uh, general themes continued. Uh, plan on right away, uh, you know, encourage your clients or if you are the contracting party, consult legal counsel. And it doesn't necessarily have to be uh, this, uh, you know, two, three day uh, event, but a half an hour on the phone with the relevant contract in the situation can save you a lot of trouble and, and headaches later on. Ken and I will tell you that we're accomplished, um, uh, like to think we are anyway, uh, accomplished trial attorneys, but if we can uh, head this off at the pass, if we can in a half an hour uh, conversation uh, eliminate what might later be a much bigger headache, we'd gladly do that. And a lot of these things, they are tricky. You know, you have a contract that's drafted and may have wonderful protection, but if you don't do the right things initially, you can, uh, can lose those protections. Um, so therefore, you know, read the contract. And number two, understand what your rights are, what your obligations are, and what your leverage points are. We'll talk about this later on, but again, reflecting back to that uh, hypothetical with the, the shamrock, I mean, it's likely that the, the restaurant itself is undergoing the same problems. Maybe it's not getting deliveries uh, of food because of the pandemic. Maybe it's had you know, 20 other uh, customers canceled. Maybe it's gonna be closed itself. So before the own panic sets in your part, really reach out to the other side. Uh, because oftentimes too, what you'll find is that there's a, you know, there's a, a willingness and a, uh, uh, an agreement to pursue a course that's mutually beneficial, or at least it causes the least harm among the two of you. And that leads to the second part, which is to encourage early uh, and frequent communications among the contracting parties. And I, I put this again, read the contract again, you know, after you've sort of settled, uh, look, take a look at some of the facts in the background, go back and look at the contract again. Uh, because it's only then that you'll start to see some of these important uh, parts coming forward. And that last point is to take the lessons forward. We'll, we'll come back to this at the end of the lecture, but um, a lot of times uh, these um, uh, provisions dealing uh, with force majeure are archaic. They've been dragged along in contracts for not tens of years, but you know, uh, half a century, for example, some of these uh, provisions are, are lingering in contracts. And, they don't apply any longer. Um, so so I'll talk about it a little bit later on. There are some really good sources to find uh, exemplar contracts and use them because um, no longer will a pandemic uh, be unforeseeable. No longer will necessarily a terror attack, terror attack be unforeseeable. If a flood was a hundred year flood before, but it's happened three times in the last decade, perhaps that is no longer unforeseeable either.
Ken, if you go to the next slide. So uh, there's our definition, force majeure, it's a French word, um, uh, superior or irresistible force. And uh, its sub-definition is an event or effect uh, that cannot uh, be reasonably anticipated or controlled. Let me just mention initially that uh, when you take a look at the force majeure law, there are three general areas where force majeure applies. It can be an affirmative defense in a tort claim, it can be an excuse to compliance with a federal or state or municipal law. You know, an example uh, is uh, you're not allowed to pollute, for example, but um, a 100-year flood comes along and sends your waste into the streams. Maybe you have a force majeure defense. And then the third, the one that we're focusing on today here, is a defense to performance of contract. And I only mention these two other areas because you need to be careful when link at the law that you haven't grabbed a case that's dealing with one of these other areas but also recognize that these other areas, uh, for better or for worse, bleed into uh, the law of um, defense to contract performance, such that, for example, themes of reasonable foreseeability, even when they're not put into the language of the contract themselves, will sometimes uh, be a, a contractual requirement. When you look at that, uh, Ken, just go, go back one step there. Um, when you look at that last part, act of God, recognize that uh, the terms aren't <clears throat> An equivalent, an act of God is narrower than a force majeure. Force majeure can be an act of God, uh, like an epidemic or a flood, or it can also be uh, man-made, such as a, a labor strike or war. Thanks, Ken. <clears throat> so there's a definition again. Um, a force majeure is a contractual provision allocating the risk of loss if performance becomes impossible or impractical. But let me add that the law has grown from this old black slot definition, dictionary definition, uh, that uh, it's also applicable if, it, um, if the contract's purpose is frustrated or if, um, uh, even if none of these, it's, as I mentioned, if, if, even if it's not impossible or impracticable or the purpose is frustrated, force majeure may still come into play if it's merely a delay of the contract. And the anticipated part of this and controlled part of this are important too. Um, even if you have a provision in there, uh, a force majeure provision in there, and it uh, gives you some protection, if you had control over either the event itself or your ability to get around and mitigate that, uh, that particular circumstance, you're obligated to do so. And the anticipation, the reasonable foreseeability, this really depends upon the jurisdiction. You're gonna get a different result oftentimes depending upon what jurisdiction you're in. So New York, for example, has taken cases where a particular circumstance was well within the contract, but uh, the, the court said, well, look, you know, it wasn't unforeseeable. Uh, and so we're not going to allow the defense to go forward. Whereas Texas has, has, has looked at the same types of uh, contracts and said, we're not going to require uh, it to be uh, um, unforeseeable because the, the parties themselves put this particular circumstance into the contract. If it's there, we're going to let the parties uh, control. Next slide, Ken. So there's our definition again, and I've underlined contract because again, it, it's a contract uh, that matters. It's a contractual defense pertaining to the allocation of risk assumed by the contracting parties the absence of the clause in the contract is usually, almost always, fatal to this particular defense, and its scope, effect, and applicability depend upon the, uh, the, the contract's uh, expressed terms. 
so just historically, so you have you know a sense of where this is all coming from. And here I'm going to earn my keep. I'll give you two Latin terms. The the one is pacta sunt servanda, the basic uh, law that says you know contracts must be honored, is balanced with the other Latin phrase ribus sic stantibus, which means provided things stay the same. So you're balancing here this this obligation for the parties to adhere to the contract's terms with changed circumstances. And the whole analysis here will be, okay, are those circumstances changed such that performance is forgiven? And the catch-all phrase uh, is really where uh, all the action is. Um, Justem generis is a, the third Latin term I, I want to introduce to you, uh, or most of you folks are probably familiar with it meaning of the same kind, that, that the, um, the two types of contracts, and uh, that'll come up in the next slide, but just hold on for here for a second. The two types of contracts for force majeure, you either have a list of specific items that uh, are covered, or you have some kind of a, you know, a catch-all phrase, such as uh, items that are beyond uh, the party's control. Um, the touchstone case in Massachusetts is this Bayetger case uh, from 1946. And I encourage any of you who are facing a force majeure circumstance to read this case. Uh, it's, uh, there aren't many cases in Massachusetts and this does a, a pretty thorough job of, of covering the topic. And it's really important too because it, it really plays out that, hey look, you know, even if I have a force majeure defense, it depends uh, upon the facts and circumstances. In that case, uh, it was a molasses delivery and the ship was uh, sunk uh, by a German submarine. Uh, the, uh, the performing party was not excused, however, because uh, the delivery was uh, a, allowed to take place in, uh, the, um, in, in tanks in, uh, in Puerto Rico. So you, know, you, you read the case initially and you think, of course, uh, performance is excused. But in fact, uh, you know, digging deeper into the case and the facts and the contract, which the court did, you find out that, that no, that performance wasn't excused. So um, this next uh, slide talks about those uh, two types of options, the open-ended uh, type of uh, clause, here, which contains language like any other cause that renders performance impossible, and the specific language which talks about uh, epidemic or pandemic or in the other sort of listed uh, categories. In fact, what one typically finds is a combination of these two. What one typically finds is a list of certain items followed by a catch-all uh, phrase that says something to the effect of, or any other uh, uh, cause that is beyond uh, the uh, control of uh, the parties. If you're involved in the construction year, uh, you'll be familiar with some of the standard contracts here, AIA, the American Institute of Architects, uh, the EJCDC, the Engineering, Engineers Joint Contracting Documents Committee, uh, Consensus Docs, and, and FAR, uh, the uh, Federal Acquisition Regs, all have different examples. You want to be really careful about simply copying those because, in truth, they're not very carefully drafted. Uh, the best of them are the FAR regulations, which have a laundry list of uh, different um, items from which you can choose or follow. And those are really thorough. Uh, and I would recommend that as a really good starting point if you're drafting a contract you know, that you can pick and choose from. I'll also note um, 
that of these uh, four sources, uh, three of them now specifically include uh, epidemics uh, as uh, something uh, that excuses uh, uh, performance. I'm going to just jump in, if it's okay, for a minute, Paul. Uh, I just wanted to mention to everybody that if you are negotiating contracts right now or, or someone in your office is, uh, it, it's going to be virtually impossible to argue that this pandemic is not foreseeable. Uh, so you should be thinking about adding whatever provisions you think you need in the contract now to account for it. I, I'm, I'm negotiating a settlement agreement right now that's going to involve uh, payments uh, in the next few months, uh, wiring funds from various sources. And, you know, the concern is, of course, that there's going to be a problem uh, with the banks or the places where the funds would be coming from, whether they're going to be open for business or not. So keep in mind that, or you should be thinking about this and be very aware of it, not only in terms of litigation, but right now in terms of, you know, how you're serving your clients in drafting contracts uh, that, that they're going to be signing in the next uh, couple of days or weeks. Uh, it's an excellent point, uh, Ken, and keep in mind too, depending upon which side of the argument you want, you are on here, um, one can argue certainly that, hey, look, you know, this pandemic wasn't foreseen. Who would foresee uh, both the pandemic and the, the government shutdown? But keep in mind too that when the SARS epidemic hit uh, some number of years ago, a lot of uh, insurance providers included uh, an exclusion for epidemics and pandemics when providing coverage for business interruption. So if you're arguing that, um, uh, that it, you know, the pandemic wasn't foreseeable, I think the arguments are obvious. But if on the other hand, you want to argue that, no, no, this was foreseeable, you can point to those insurance industry provisors which said, hey, look, you know, parties that were thinking about this certainly could have uh, provided their own protection. Um, next slide, Ken. So uh, in summary on the force majeure, you uh, don't want to rest on your con contractual rights. You want to act. Uh, a lot of the cases uh, talk about these next two issues, the duty to mitigate and notice requirements. Oftentimes, the contract will have a specific provision that says uh, the party seeking to rely upon the force majeure excuse has an obligation to provide notice. Uh, 10 days is a, is a frequently uh, cited provision. And the reason for this notice provision is, is several fold. You want to give the other side notice and uh, the, uh, the right for themselves uh, to mitigate or, and to collect uh, information. Um, you, you also um, uh, want uh, to uh, provide uh, them with a chance to, to contact you and uh, attempt to, to reach any, any resolution. Um, what you, you know, you, you can't, absolutely, the courts are pretty uniform that if this is something you try to stick in as a contractual defense at the time of litigation, uh, the courts have been pretty steadily, uh, st steady in their rejection of that and saying, no, no, you know, there's, there's an obligation to have acted back at the time when the incident was, was occurring, um, so that parties uh, can act. And the duty to mitigate as well, that the, you want to think here uh, with mitigation about eventual causal issues at that last point. Uh, because say there's a pandemic, uh, that will uh, impact different industries and different players within different industries differently. So the courts have said, for example, that, you know, um, 
you know, when there is an event, uh, uh, a picket, uh, a labor uh, interruption, um, such that uh, there was a, a, a concern about the provider, in one case, a, a cement provider from crossing the picket line. It was a very much a, a fact intensive inquiry as to whether the cement provider could have gotten around uh, the, uh, the picket line, whether the picket line was reasonably, reasonably foreseeable, and uh, what other uh, steps could have been taken by the provider uh, to actually uh, deliver. Thank you. Next uh, slide, Ken. Okay, so then impossibility. So now we're leaving the realm for a moment here of uh, contractual arguments and now uh, entering into the realm of, of these the three implied at law provisions. And before I move there, let me just mention that the, the, the common law is gonna have a little bit more uncertainty, right? You, you're gonna be even more uh, wedded to the facts and circumstances of particular cases, the development of these, uh, these concepts in the jurisdiction you're in. You can get rid of, uh, if you're still in the contracting phase, you can get rid of a lot of this uncertainty by drafting a really careful uh, force majeure or delay related clause by addressing issues of you know, what types of concepts will be seen as sufficiently uh, superseding causes to steal a, a term from the tort world. And what notice is required? Uh, what steps are required to mitigate? Um, so, so you're only in uh, these uh, three common law uh, areas if, in fact, you're, you're, you haven't uh, occupied the field with your force majeure clause. So with impossibility, I want to have you think about two particular concepts. One is that impossibility really now bleeds into impracticability, um, that it doesn't have to be scientifically impossible, but in fact, um, if it rises uh, to the level of uh, uh, being um, uh, the performance is not vitally different because of some difficulty, expense, injury, or loss, uh, that is sufficient. So the first thing to, to focus on is, is that it doesn't have to be completely impossible. It can be uh, such a change that it, um, it, it be extreme or unreasonably difficult uh, or expensive for the party uh, to perform. So that's the first concept to think about with impossibility. The second concept is um, the, the reasonable foreseeability. Um, the, un the unanticipated circumstance which has made the performance of the promise vitally different from what should have reason reasonably been contemplated by the parties. And just as I referred to one particular case, um, if I can go back for one second, Ken, just as I referred to one particular case in the force majeure clause, there's only one real case that you need to study closely with respect to impossibility, and that's this Mishara case from 1974. And um, depending upon whether you're in the land of goods and services or outside of that area, the UCC will apply and not apply. And for impossibility, the UCC provision is 2-615. But both UCC and uh, this uh, Mishara case, case both talk about this opening of impossibility to uh, bring in concepts of, uh, of impracticability. So you, you're basically talking about uh, those two concepts uh, hand in glove uh, nowadays. Next slide, Ken. 
So, um, as I mentioned, uh, the circumstances uh, generally involve extreme or unreasonably difficulty of, uh, or expense. Uh, the virtual, if not scientific, of impossi scientific impossibility of performance of contractual obligations is no longer really required. Um, but it, uh, you do find a leeway if you've got a drastic increase in the difficulty and expense of performance. In some examples on the next slide of impossibility, death in a personal services contract, destruction of the property, unavailability of the property, governmental regulations or restrictions which impact performance, another party's conduct impedes the performance. And uh, the last point is that the change of financial circumstances generally do not uh, create impossibility or in impracticability. And one last slide, Ken. The problem must not uh, be uh, created by the party asserting the defense. This applies to all of these defenses, by the way. Uh, the parties who try to comply uh, or cover fare better, again, that applies to all these defenses. And courts are skeptical, skeptical if the risk was foreseeable at the time of contracting, which again applies to. Ken? Thanks, uh, Paul. Uh, so now we're going to move into, Paul just mentioned the uh, UCC, uh, which, which uh, sort of has, has now created or codified the, the, the theory of commercial impracticability. Uh, and in Massachusetts, the site is Chapter 106, Section 2-615. Um, and if it's a sale of goods, uh, delay in the delivery or non-delivery uh, uh, by the seller will not be a breach if uh, the performance has been made impracticable by some occurrence which the parties could not have anticipated uh, and in fact was the non-occurrence of which was a basic assumption uh, of the contract. Um, so for example going back to our St. Patrick's Day hypothetical you know the assumption was that there was going to be a parade uh, on uh, the, the Sunday, March 15th, uh, before St. Patrick's Day, uh, and uh, the parties contracted uh, with the uh, fact, with the basic assumption that, 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 the, that the likelihood of a cancellation uh, was, was basically impossible. Uh, but the, the other things to keep in mind about con con commercial impracticability are that, um, A, it's a statutory defense, so you, you have to really focus and look at the statute. Um, again, like Paul said, it's 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 impracticability, not impossibility. Um, the courts, when they're interpreting uh, the UCC stat uh, statute and provision, have looked to other cases involving impossibility of performance, especially to for the issues of foreseeability um, and hardship and things like that. Um, and so, so you should you should keep that in mind. Um, the other the other thing that I think is important to mention, uh, as uh, some of you are probably uh, you know, if, if you're a trial attorney, uh, you know, are these issues questions of law that that are going to be decided by a judge, or are these all questions of fact? And here, this, whether the circumstances excuse performance is is going to be a question of fact. So. You know, when you're litigating these cases, you have to keep that in mind. You're probably not going to get summary judgment one way or the other, um, and and so you you know that that that's going to impact uh, your decision making about settlement, 
and uh, and you know how 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 are you going to approach the case? Uh, the other two points about commercial impracticability practicability uh, in the statute that you should keep in mind is there is a good faith requirement imposed on the party seeking to assert this defense, and also the notice requirement uh, that that does require uh, you uh, or the contracting party that wants to assert the defense to reasonably quickly notify the other party of uh, the fact that there is the impracticability uh, problem uh, in your delivery of the goods. Um, so again, it's, it's, most of these are the same, the same issues that come up in the, com in, the other, in the other defenses, extreme and unreasonable difficulties. It has to be unforeseeable. Uh, the cases have stated that failure of a third party supplier to provide what you need to complete uh, the product before you ship it is generally not an unforeseen contingency, does not relieve the promisor of a breach, and changes in the market generally are not considered unforeseen risks uh, that, that, that trigger the, uh, this, this provision. Um, so frustration of purpose. This is, the, this is the, the last defense that we're going to talk about today. Um, and this relates to what I think, you know, that St. Patrick's Day hypothetical is really all about. You have a restaurant, it still can serve food, it still can serve alcohol, um, and uh, it's it, at the time when this was happening, it was still permissible to, to be open. Um, and the, the, but the only reason that Jimmy Bulger really wanted to use the restaurant was because he wanted to throw a party uh, for, for his close friends and be able to watch the parade. And so if the contract made, if the, if the principal purpose of the contract is substantially frustrated without any fault uh, uh, on the part of the party uh, and the non-occurrence of it was a basic assumption on which the contract was made, again, using the same language we saw in the UCC uh, and the other defenses, his remaining duties to render performance are discharged unless the language or the circumstances indicate to the contrary. So, and then this case, the Chase Precast uh, Corp case, uh, is a case involving the supply of New Jersey barriers for uh, construction work on one Route 128. Uh, the, there was a contract that uh, Chase Precast was going to provide those Jersey barriers, and because of citizen protests about the uh, not wanting Jersey barriers on the median, uh, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts uh, told the John Paynessa company, which was the general contractor, that they were changing the design and that they were no longer going to allow Jersey barriers to be used. So in this case, the court uh, said that, uh, that the um, switch was that uh, this was a frustration of purpose for the contract. Um, so what is the party's principal purpose? Has it been substantially frustrated? These are all the questions you want to ask the client uh, during the analysis of the strengths of the defense. Um, and, you know, is there any fault here on, on your client's part? Uh, all, all, all questions you want to analyze before you, you assert the defense. Um, and is there any allocation of the risk, either either because it says so in the contract or because of the circumstances or 
or you know general general industry practices uh, that would preclude the assertion of the frustration of pur purposes defense. Um, this uh, this case Kara uh, versus Kuk Yim. Um, held that the frustration defense was not available to a tenant who rented property uh, in the hopes that his uh, that their family could come from another country and live there uh, when at the time and and then when the when the uh, family had applied for visas to come those visas were denied and the court held that that was uh, that was something that was foreseeable and certainly something that that the tenant was responsible for, and so there would be no frustration of purpose defense recognized in the case. Uh, here's just some more general information about frustration of purpose that we pulled out of some of the case law. It is the common law twin of the UCC provision. It is a companion to the impossibility rule, except the difference lies in the effect of the supervening event. Uh, here, in, uh, under frustration of purpose, the performance of the contract remains possible. It's the expected value of the performance that dictates whether or not the party seeking to be excused can assert the defense. Um, again, foreseeability is relevant, but it's not solely determinative of the issue. And be, going back to that uh, that case, the Kara case, uh, it doesn't apply if the court finds that the risk has been allocated by the contract or the, or other circumstances. Ken, if I could jump in for one second here. Uh, sure. One is that um, all of these uh, these uh, potential uh, supervening causes uh, also bring up issues of causation. Um, so so you know if the pandemic has come into play here, uh, it's not necessarily clear that your contract has been impacted by itself, right? Is it the pandemic or perhaps is it the government shutdown or was it the fear of being sick or was it uh, the economic downturn or was it absenteeism? So you want to be really careful about um, thinking about what in fact caused uh, your, your, uh, your problem in the first place. Let me also mention too that we've got um, some time at the end that we have for question and answers. Uh, and the way to do that is to type them in uh, to the, that uh, chat session Q&A provision there down at the bottom of your screen. So if you have any questions about this, uh, in 10 minutes or so, we can, uh, we can address those. Yep. Uh, that's a good point, Paul, because, uh, you know, you might be able to tee up your defense by, by characterizing what the frustration, what, what was the cause of the supervening event. I mean, instead of calling it the pandemic, if you say, well, uh, you know, it was a governmental action or it was the inability to get product uh, that I needed to supply. Uh, those are those might be uh, available to you when the pandemic isn't. So keep in mind how you cast your, uh, you know, your, what, what the supervening event is could be very, very significant and pivotal about how likely you are to succeed with this defense. And, and, and then the last slide on the frustration of purpose is relating to what kind of uh, what kind of events are we seeing uh, as ones that the courts have recognized creating a frustration of purpose. Government action is the classic one. If if a new regulation or a new statute is uh, it, or or some sort of executive action prohibiting something 
um, uh, it comes along, that will be probably something that would be uh, looked at uh, as a frustration of purpose defense. Uh, new regulations that are a byproduct that are a byproduct of new technology may be, and this is what I'm thinking of here is there was a case, and I, I don't remember the name of it, but it involved cabs, taxi cabs in Boston that before were charged, I think, a flat fee for, uh, you know, and, and it, whether or not they were on duty or not, it was because it was difficult to determine whether they were on duty or not. But but then the the city of Boston regulations changed, requiring cabs to have GPS. Uh, devices put in them, and uh, and then the I think it was the cab drivers challenged the flat fee uh, that was being charged by the taxi associations, um, saying that now that this technology existed, uh, that flat fee uh, there was a frustration of purpose with respect to that. Uh, price fluctuations generally not a remote contingency. Moves to new technology by the market are not, and and there was a case involving the a sale of a printing company where uh, the 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 valuation of the of the company changed, and the theory uh, that the defendant used in that case was that the printing industry had been devalued because of uh, the fact that people had moved to the internet and they weren't printing things, they weren't reading books as much, they were doing things online, and the court said that that move to new technologies by the market generally is not was not in that case uh did not warrant a finding of frustration of purpose the the last thing on on frustration of purpose is you know to the extent and i think this would apply to all the other defenses too to the extent that uh you might be able to seek some sort of reformation or amendment of the contract rather than discharge or rescission is another reason to to jump on this early with your client and try to engage the other side and try to work something out that uh, avoids litigation uh, by reforming the contract and make it making it possible for the parties to perform um, so that's that's what we have on on the four defenses the, the the last few minutes before we take questions we're going to spend on some sort of practice tips or observations regarding this that we that we think are you know sort of helpful for people to know regardless of which defense are gonna is gonna come up. So Paul, you can chime in as well on this. Um, but, oh, but let me just make one one more point about about the these cases. Uh, there is this this uh, Cara case. Even though the the um, the defendant was not successful in uh, asserting the frustration of purpose defense, the court did hold that the issues of foreseeability of the event the allocation of risk and the degree of hardship to be incurred were all questions for the trier of fact and could not be decided as a matter of law. And again, I think that's extremely important in how you approach your litigation um, and the strategy you take about settlement and about uh, the likelihood that you're gonna be able to convince a jury uh, that all these elements are available to you. And, and it usually is more helpful to the party asserting the defense because they're going to probably survive summary judgment. Uh, okay, practice tips. Paul, you want to you take a stab at this? Sure, my, my pleasure, Ken. And, and I can't echo uh, what Ken said strongly enough, that case after case says, uh, you know, it, there are questions for the jury. So as much as you try to pin this stuff down, 
a lot of it is going to be really fact intensive. And then even when the facts are known, it's still oftentimes not resolvable as a matter of law. So the practice tips echo on what we've talked about here. You know, the first one, I think we've said it several times, read the contract, right? That's where your rights are going to start uh, from. Uh, and it's going to have or not have uh, provisions that will enable you to take advantage of a force majeure clause. And if it doesn't, you're stuck with, uh, with the common law. Recognize too that sometimes if you're uh, trying to claim uh, uh, a, a right not to perform, you may be better with no force majeure clause because if the force majeure clause is there and it delineates uh, different types of, um, and yours is not included, you lose. But if there's nothing there, you can argue the other uh, common law uh, provisions. So preserve all possibly relevant evidence right away. Uh, so not only is the proof of the the, uh, the harm and mitigation necessary, but you have to prove the actual event. So uh, the pandemic in four or five years, by the time you go to trial, may not be fresh in everybody's mind. So newspaper clippings, evidence of uh, the shutdown, whatever you need to do to preserve what actually happened. Uh, and again, if it was a hurricane or a terror attack, whatever it is, you want to keep evidence of that, but also you want to keep evidence of the impact it had on your business and also any efforts you've, uh, you've made to try to provide notice and to mitigate. Uh, and be proactive, not reactive. Don't wait. Um, as I mentioned above, record and preserve all your steps. Uh, and say it again, observe any notice applications, obligations. And communications, uh, communication is always a good policy. Because recognize that for most of these uh, contracts, especially the written contracts, force majeure doesn't allow you to terminate uh, the contract or even to amend it, but it simply allocates responsibility for delay. So for example, the contract has some penalty for delay. If you can prove force majeure, you just get excused from the penalty of the delay. So it really behooves you to reach out to the other side to try to reach an accord and talk about things uh, as how that's going to play out. And really important, get anything, any agreement that you do reach, get it in writing. And if there is an agreement to provide some kind of uh, alleviation, uh, make that a formal amendment uh, to the contract, whatever the contract requires for that formal amendment. Um, consider other defaults and clean hands. Ken uh, talked about the need for good faith and you cover that by uh, reaching out and trying to mitigate and providing notice. Uh, I, I did want to mention here, Paul, that one of the things I saw in some cases was parties using the, you know, the event as an excuse after they've already defaulted on their obligation under the contract. The courts are not going to take kindly to an effort to say, well, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm excused from this contract now because of this event if, in fact, you know, let's take, for example, you know, paying your rent in a commercial lease. If you've already been three months late on your rent uh, and then the event happens, in all likelihood, it's going to be very difficult to argue that the, that the supervening event is what's causing you to default on your, um, on, on your contract. So, and, and have clean hands uh, as much as you can um, on that. Excellent point, Ken. Um, the next bullet point there is, uh, now's a good time, too, to take the time to review forms for the next big event. And I mentioned some of those uh, forms that are available in the, the I really would take a look at the, um, 
of the fire regulations because they, they provide an excellent template. But think about the next big event, uh, climate change, uh, pandemics, and, and terror. Particularly with climate change, those are really fact-intensive cases. Uh, when, when folks claim, you know, a hundred-year storm, experts come in from both sides nowadays, and there are several cases on this now where they get into an argument about whether this, in fact, was unforeseeable. A storm that was unforeseeable 15 years ago is no longer unforeseeable. So be really careful about what your contract says and focus on the language in light of what is unfortunately a changing world with respect to climate change, uh, terror, and perhaps uh, the spread of disease. Um, and so that's our last point uh, to consider the, the force majeure in, uh, in all new contracts. Thanks, Paul. Okay, uh, so now uh, we'll, we'll open it up for questions, um, and I will go back to the video. We, we, we thought it would be better for you to see the whole screen, but if people have questions and they want to write them, um, we'll be happy to answer them. Um, I think Sarah was going to... Um, so can Sarah. I have... There's one question here that, 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 that a law student has posed, and I'm not sure I understand it completely, but I'm going to read it out loud, and it's exactly okay. that you mentioned when we were speaking beforehand about the impact on students in schools and the potential claims for students that, hey, look, you know, I paid for six months of education, but I'm only getting four, so do I get money back? And this one has a, a little bit of a layer to it when he talks about the student, uh, he or she talks about what happens to the residential lease, right? That I signed the lease, and I, I'm not sure I understand the exact logistics here, but it looks like he was told by a school to go home and then signed a new lease uh, in his, uh, his home state. And so now he's wondering what his obligations are on these two leases. Uh, with the new one, if he now runs back to school, does he have a right to, to, to break the lease? And does he have a right to break the lease of the place he was occupying close to school? Ken, do you want to start on that? Well, the first thing I'll say is to this law student, um, you know, I hope, I hope that everything you get, you get back to school and, and, and this isn't going to delay your education. <coughs> Secondly, on there, I just coughed. So I hope that I'm okay. Uh, the second thing I'll say is, you know, obviously whatever general information we can give you about this, we're happy to do, but don't consider anything we're saying to you as legal advice. Um, we have, it would be important to read these leases. Um, and see exactly what they say. Um, uh, my, you know, I, I, I think that would be the first step: is that you should you should have, see if the lease has a force majeure clause in it, um, and you know the circumstances, the timing, and things like that. So uh, I, I think that uh, I, I think that uh, we would we would say that I mean that would be my response: is let's is to send it to look at your lease, see what it says. And, and then consider the factors that we talked about in our, in our uh, pr pr uh, presentation today. The next question, um, we have an event that takes place shortly after the current stay home order is set to lift. At this po uh, point, the, the event could still happen, but we really fear no attendance. Um, if folks, even if the, the official ban is lifted, uh, that people will won't come. Uh, so the, the um, force majeure provision in this contract allows for pandemic, but is also their frustration defense. And let me answer this in two ways. That, that I mean, that's a, a great point, right? If you have uh, an excuse for the pandemic, 
but your event takes two place after the, the government shutdown lifts, you still have an argument. Uh, and do you also have a frustration defense? So first, on the pandemic part, keep in mind that the pen, the, the, there are two things at issue here. One is the pandemic and the other is the government shutdown, in, in which is causal. And in fact, some contracts specify separately uh, pandemic, one, two, government shutdown, three, uh, quarantine orders. So here, I would think that the pandemic is still in play, even though the government shutdown uh, is over. So I think you have a, an argument, at least, uh, that, you know, you, 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 it's fact intensive, but I wouldn't say that your um, force majeure argument is gone just because the government shutdown is over. But you also ask whether there's also a frustration defense. Keep in mind that the frustration defense is pretty much uh, the force majeure defense, that if you have a force majeure provision, you're more likely than not to be, uh, to, 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 to have your rights decided under that particular contact uh, clause. But that said, that very first case that I mentioned back in 1946, did both the force majeure analysis and uh, a frustration analysis. So take a look at that case and, and see if in fact, uh, you may be able to, to make both arguments. Again, I think I think it's important to point out too that you know none of these defenses uh, should exclude you from asserting any of the other ones. I mean, keeping in mind that you know you can plead in the alternative in Massachusetts. So uh, if uh, you know if you when you when you do your affirmative defenses, if it's a breach of contract claim, then assert all of them, uh, and you know you may not win on one, but you may win on the other. Uh, and then the other point is you may want to think about when you're, when you're facing this situation, one of the things we haven't talked about at all is maybe you want to be on the offensive. If you think you have a really strong defense of non-performance, you may want to be the first one in court. You may want to file a, deca a declar declar declaratory judgment action uh, asking the court to declare that the, either the force majeure clause uh, you know, absolves you from from any uh, responsibilities or these other defenses do. So you're going to have the affirmative uh, obligation and the burden of proof, whether you're the defendant and you raise it as an affirmative defense or in the connection of a declaratory judgment action if you decide to bring it. So uh, that's another uh, consideration to make when you're analyzing this for your clients. Do you want to be in court and be able to pick the jurisdiction, be able to pick the, the, the venue that you're in, um, uh, and, you know, you might want to be in the BLS, for example. Uh, so, so you may want to dictate, be able to dictate where the case is brought. Ken, another excellent question. It's something that, that you touched on, um, and I'll let you answer it with a, a, a sort of a, a, a reminder of that, that point that you made before. The question is, would foreseeability be impacted if the contract was being negotiated during, say, December 2019 to January 2020, when the pandemic was brewing, but not yet a fully global issue. You know, I think that's a that's a really good question. I, I think I think that you uh, again, this is, these are fact intensive questions. So the issue would probably come up. Well, it may have been known to uh, people that there was a virus in China uh, or somewhere else that was, uh, or Italy or wherever that was that was uh, causing some real problems, but you know, did that rise to the level of putting you on notice 
that you should you should have that included in a contract where you're going to be performing it, for example, here in Massachusetts. Um, maybe not so. Um, so so I think it really is it depends on the facts. I think if you, as the attorney negotiating the agreement, are aware of it, aware of what's going on, you at least ought to think about it and talk to your client about it, and and you know let them make the decision about they, whether they. They think this is something that ought to be raised uh, in the negotiations uh, and added to the agreement. Ken, I'm going to blend these two questions together because I think they, they touch on the same point. And, and I think that, uh, unfortunately, the, the questions are getting trickier and trickier as, as, uh, as we answer the, the easier ones. Uh, so here are two, okay? Um, a government, the government has banned uh, gatherings of 10, uh, 10 uh, or more people, so a wedding uh, can't be held. Forget about the wedding, how about the wedding guests? Do each or all of them have defenses to get a refund for the hotel room? And then what about the, the wedding couple's deposit uh, on the wedding venue? And this leads to an, the next question, which I think is very similar, right? Um, in, in the realm of commercial real estate, how about all of the, the folks who have uh, leases on commercial buildings for use uh, for their offices, but they haven't been able to use them for the last whatever number of days. Can they get a discount on their uh, on their uh, on their lease? And I think I have a flavor of an answer to the second one that's different than the first one. What do you think? Well, the first one's near and dear to my heart. I have two two uh, of my kids, my children, not children, my adult children, are getting married this year. Uh, one of them happens to be, uh, uh, you know, a, a work at the Boston Bar Association. Some of you may know her, but, but um, you know, I think it would be it would be you'd be hard pressed to be able to uh, convince a hotel uh, that that you know you shouldn't have to that you should lose your you shouldn't be able to get your deposit back uh, because the wedding had to be canceled. Uh, although it's certainly worth a try, you should look at the reservation terms and conditions. I know Airbnb and other organizations like that are are uh, are beginning to uh, respond to those requests and allow people to get refunds uh, from the, of their deposits. Uh, but I think it's you know you should look at the terms and conditions and call the call the uh, venue and see. I, I'll let you pitch. I'll let you take the abatement of rent. Well, let me, let me just, I think that your last point was, was particularly important, Ken, where you say how important it is to call the venue, because it may be that, uh, you know, look, if, if the couple was supposed to get married, all things being equal, the wedding should still go forward in six months and, unless things go south. And so maybe the hotel will say, fine, we're not going to refund your deposit, but, you know, we'll allow you to use that uh, for, the, for the, the, this next round. Same thing with the reservation uh, on, the, on, the, on the hall. I think on the, the real estate, it's going to be very tough. I, I think that, you know, courts are going to look at this and say, you know, uh, it would be a real, you know, the prudential analysis of requiring all of the commercial landlords and throughout the Commonwealth to refund, you know, some portion of the month's rent for folks who wasn't using it. And, you know, can you prove that I didn't go into the office and, in fact, somebody saw you using your key card on these particular days? And even though you didn't use your office, you were still relying upon certain parts of the infrastructure. I, I think that's a really difficult claim. But again, that's my sort of personal reaction to it. And I certainly don't know enough about the terms of your lease or the, 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 the actual harm being caused um, um, 
or the you know the particular response you'd get from your landlord. But I would think that that would be the I, I think if I were a landlord, I would say first of all, I, the space is available for you. There's no requirement that you use it. Um, and you know, if 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 this is the rule that you think ought to apply, then why are we? Why don't we? Uh, why don't we prorate your rent because you're only open five days a week and not charge you for the other two days that you're you're not here? Uh, you are using it to the extent that you still list the address on your website, um, that you are a Boston accounting firm or whatever, um, and your mail is still being delivered to that address. Um, your network servers are there. Your property is there. I think it would be a really hard case to argue that you're entitled to some sort of abatement. The last, Ken, we're, we're out of time, but I, I, this, this, uh, this last question, I think, is a, another very good one. Um, the, uh, question and a half. Once one person had followed up on that law student question and asked, uh, if the contract is silent on force majeure, do you think the student has a good frustration of purpose or other argument? Sure, yes. I think the argument is there. Uh, it, it all, again, depends upon what the contract says. I look at that uh, pretty, pretty closely. Um, somebody asked me uh, to highlight where we can find the examples of the, uh, the, the, the good uh, contractual language, and I found that in the, uh, the Federal Acquisition uh, Regulation, FAR, FAR. Uh, that I thought was, was, was really good. And they went so far in those regulations for weather delays, they had the party sit down beforehand and take a calendar year and anticipate how many weather delays there might be in those, those calendar months. And anything outside of that would be considered unusual. They were really thoughtful and careful. So this last question, um, uh, are these defenses a zero-sum game or are some courts willing to reform contracts to make them partially performable or performable in a different way than anticipated? So the answer is yes and no. The answer no is that, we, at least I in the cases I review, and I think I heard Ken say the same thing, the courts almost always defer to these as jury questions. You, you, you're left not with so much the court coming in and remaking the contract, the court will interpret the contract, but I, I haven't seen any, any, any cases where a court has come in and, and you know, exercised that kind of authority. That said, the place to go is in discussions that frequently we know anecdotally that the parties are, are very much willing uh, to, re to reform the contract and to make provisos uh, for delay. I'm, I'm personally knowledgeable about a, a contract that took place in Turkey with a, a you know a winter that had 100-year uh, snow levels and the, the contracting party was obligated to deliver cement. It was excused. It supposedly had no excuse in the contract but the parties agreed uh, to do so, put it in writing, and, and on they went. Okay. Well, uh, it's 11.03. Um, I want to thank uh, Paul, and I want to thank the Boston Bar Association for, uh, for inviting us to put on this uh, program. I hope uh, you found it informative. Uh, it, I think it, it will be available uh, on video, uh, at a video link at the Boston Bar Association website, and I think any of the attendees will also get an email with that link, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so with that, I'm going to turn it back over to Sarah, um, who I think is going to close it out. 
Thank you, Ken and Paul, um, and thank you for all the attendees for um, attending, believe it or not, our first um, Zoom webinar. As you know, we usually do business in person at the BBA, so we appreciate everybody's flexibility um, in joining us in this virtual world. Um, Ken and Paul, um, would you be willing to share this PowerPoint um, with the attendees um, after we wrap up? Okay, perfect. So those says absolutely. Okay, yep. so those of you who asked about sharing the presentation, um, we'll go ahead and do that a little later today. Um, we'll also let you know in the on-demand video link is available. Um, when you close out, a brief survey will appear. Um, we would appreciate it if you could quickly fill it out. Um, we're trying to improve um, our processes here at the BBA um, and we wanna be responsive to attendee feedback. So again, thank you all for joining us. Um, we hope to see you again virtually. Uh, thank you to our speakers um, and we hope you have a good day. Thank you.